junior church at this time. So you may make your way to junior church. And I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 3 today. Genesis chapter 3 today as we go to the Lord's Word today. Most of you know that I do not like snakes. I've shared that in sermon illustrations, I think, before. I shared a lot because I have such a degree of hatred for snakes and a, 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 a fear of snakes. We moved to Louisville, Ohio, which was before we moved to Alliance. We were living in a duplex uh, for a while, renting from a church member. And I go out in the garage, and there's a garter snake out stretched out in the garage. But thankfully, Megan took care of it for me. Um, <laughs> With a broom, and then a neighbor later on, a few days later, uh, found it in their yard and and killed it because the only good snake is a dead snake, right? Joel doesn't agree. It was 2007, and I had a friend who was a Methodist pastor, and he lived in a parsonage. And since he lived in a parsonage, he would he uh, bought a kind of a cabin type house out in the woods, like literally in the woods of Kentucky. Uh, south of Moorhead, I think it was, Kentucky. It had a big hill, a gravel driveway to get up, gravel lane. You literally needed four-wheel drive to get up there. And so he invited me to go down and, and help him do some work. And we were cutting down brush and cutting down trees and stuff and had a big fire going. And he said, be careful. One time in 10 years, I saw a copperhead here. Just one time. So, I think I was wearing shorts and gym shoes. It was a hot summer day. I never wore shorts and gym shoes there again after this day. Because we're cutting things down and burning it, you know, feeling really good about ourselves. And I weed whacked with this, like, blade of death. I had, like, a steel blade on it. And after that, I take a lawnmower and I'm finishing off the area we cleared. And I turn around and I see this copperhead slithering away. I, I'm serious. I've had nightmares about that copperhead. It gets bigger Every year. And and psychologists have proven our memories change as we recall them. I tried to push the lawnmower towards it because the only good snake is a dead snake. And it coiled back, so I ran the other way. And snakes, I don't like them. A number of times I've been running on trails. I'm still trying to run. They're not like I did. And uh, there's a trail called the Greenway Trail down in Lisbon. It's a beautiful, beautiful trail. I loved running it. And one day we were biking. We took a group, uh, a group of of young adults or younger adults, somewhere in their 40s. So they were pretty old, right? And we're biking the trail, the whole trail. And we, a guy ahead of me goes by something and we saw something black there. We thought it's an inner tube. And then as the next person goes by, we see her let out a shriek and a black snake starts to come up. And we all went by it real quick. I won't run that trail anymore. I'm just kidding. I have. In the winter, it's okay because you're supposed to go down under. I do not like snakes. In Genesis 3, we see the devil take the form of a snake in order to tempt Adam and Eve. And, and I've preached on this passage before, so for today's purposes, I'm just going to summarize parts of the story because I want to focus mainly on the prophecy of Jesus the Messiah that we see here. My theme today is, in Genesis 3, sin enters the world, but we also have the first prophecy that God will provide a Savior. We see grace in the midst of judgment. 
Now, why am I preaching on this, on this passage in Genesis 3? I'm preaching on it because I'm in a series about how Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are foundational to our faith. They're significant. They're critical. And this passage is no different. We see the first prophecy that God will send a redeemer. We also see a worldview question answered in Genesis 3. What is wrong with the world? So first, let's talk about sin. In Genesis 3, 1 through 7, again, I'm going to summarize that part. We're going to look at Scripture. We're going to look at Genesis 3, verse 15 here in a minute, and then some New Testament passages, because the things I've also been trying to show you is that the New Testament, as well as other places of the Old Testament, reference these passages. And we start to compromise the Bible. And we start to say, oh, that's not real. That's just allegory. That's just symbolic. It's not real. It's just myth. Um, things like that. It's just fiction. It compromises other parts of the Bible as well. So we'll look at the scripture in a minute. But in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, we see Adam and Eve tempted by the devil. And they give in to temptation. The devil tempts them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This passage is telling us what is wrong with the world, which is sin. Everyone thinks about it, whether they realize it or not. They think about what is wrong with the world. Studies have shown by the age of about nine years old, children have their worldview set. A worldview is not a bad thing. Remember, I preached on having a biblical worldview. I'm sure you remember every one of the sermons. If you do, you're better than me. But... uh, A worldview is not a bad thing. Having a worldly worldview or secular worldview is a bad thing. A worldview is just how we view the world. The Titanic fascinates me. This is not an ADHD moment. It it fits. You'll see in a minute. The Titanic fascinates me. It's like 10,000 feet below the water right now, struck 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 an iceberg and sank in something like 20 minutes. They say worldviews are like icebergs. Most of the iceberg, just from what I've been told, is under the surface of the water. Most of the iceberg is under the surface of the water. In most of our worldview, we don't think about it. It just comes natural to us. We hear something. We think about something. We have a gut reaction. A gut reaction. What is wrong with the world? That's answered in Genesis 3. This morning I was listening to a book called Tactics by Gregory Kokel. Very, very, very good book. I'm almost finished with it. I highly commend it to you. It's about having conversations with people using a Colombo idea of asking questions and getting people to think. It's almost like a basic book of logic, though he doesn't, he doesn't even talk about logic, but it's there. And he quotes, he has a, kind of one of the last few chapters talks about the inside out. And he quotes one of the militant atheists. I think it's Richard Dawkins, might have been another guy. And this atheist talks about he doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in these things. He just believes in naturalism, just believes in materialism, just believes that's all that there is. But yet, then there's a paragraph of an exact quote of where he talks about how bad Christians are. And all the, all the words he uses, extreme words to talk about how bad Christians are. And Dr. Gregory Kokel brings out, do you notice it? He has no basis for that morality. Yet the inside came out. The inside came out that there is right and wrong. There is morality. What is wrong with the world? That's answered in Genesis 3. We all have to question it. We all have to answer what is wrong with the world. There are other questions about a worldview. What does it mean to be human? 
That's answered in Genesis chapters one through three and throughout the rest of the Bible. Where is history going? We see that later on in the Bible. But right, and we actually see it in Genesis 3.15 too. Where is history going? God will send a redeemer. These answers, these worldview answers to life are right here in Genesis 3. What is wrong with the world? Depravity. I'm gonna bring up something and I'm bringing it up slowly. There are different theories of what's wrong with the world. Some theories like naturalism might say humans are what's wrong with the world. Gregory Kokel talked about Earth Day, you know, and how Earth Day really doesn't fit with a naturalistic worldview, but they try to make it fit. But, you know, it should be just a natural cycle. But there are certain worldviews that would say humans are, humans are what's wrong with the world. We are hurting the world. We're what's wrong with the world. That's not what this says, though. This is, and we need to take care of our planet. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but this is saying sin is wrong with the world. When sin entered the world, the world became depraved. The world became fallen. And, and, and sin is what's wrong with the world. Not humans. Sin is what's wrong with the world. There are other worldviews, such as critical theory, which has become critical race theory. And I want to read something from a Breakpoint commentary about that. From a Breakpoint commentary, Breakpoint is through the Colson Center, and there was critical theory, which has now become critical race theory, and what's next is probably coming uh, critical queer theory. And I can tell you more about that if you want. But critical theory would say that people with merit become oppressors, and that's what's wrong with the world. And now it's become critical race theory, and, 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 it, and it has become a worldview whether people recognize it or not because it has a different view of what's wrong with the world. They would say, Europeans are what's wrong with the world. And let me read this from the Breakpoint commentary. Francis Schaeffer was a great Christian theologian and, and philosopher. Francis Schaeffer described how ideas escaped the ivory towers of universities and think tanks eventually to shape how ordinary people think, speak, and view their world. In 2020, one idea made that journey in record time, not that long ago. Conversations involving critical race theory were largely relegated to academic papers, classroom discussions, and scholarly journal articles. Today, dialogues about CRT, critical race theory, can be found across social media, in corporate boardrooms, and even in the church. As a theory, CRT, critical race theory, descends from European and North American philosophical traditions particularly Marxism and postmodernism. Like these worldviews of its intellectual ancestry, CRT, critical race theory, sees the world in terms of power dynamics. In this way of thinking, social evils such as poverty, crime, or oppression result not from universal human frailties, but from Euro-Americans intent on securing and increasing their economic and social power. You hear that? That is a different worldview of what is wrong with the world. It's not about fallenness and depravity. It's about oppression. And, 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 and oppression really would not be right, but this is saying Indo-Europeans in and of themselves lead to oppression, lead to what's wrong with the world. Let me read more of this. Based on this meta-narrative, equality and justice demand privileging the stories of those kept out of power. CRT sees members of the oppressed group as morally right, and members of the oppressor group as morally wrong. CRT, like any uh, worldview framework, should be evaluated. Like the postmodernism that birthed it, critical race theory can be considered a worldview. It does more than just offer a handful of specific ideas about race and society. CRT offers a complete framework of beliefs, a universalizing story of the world. CRT describes who we are, what's wrong with the world, and prescribes how to fix it, and what better would be. In other words, like Christianity, 
CRT answers the basic questions any worldview does, except the answers CRT provides are very different than those Christianity offers. Even if both worldviews recognize the power is, even if both worldviews recognize the world is broken by evils such as racism and, and injustice, the answers are different. Critical race theory has critical errors. By simplistically reducing evil to power dynamics and external social realities, <coughs> sorry, CRT denies moral agency and the redemptive potential of entire groups of people because of their racial identity. CRT denies moral agencies in the redemptive, the redemptive possibilities of entire groups of people. And of course, it's never right to oppress. I'm gonna end what I just read right there. I could send it to you if any of you want. I could send you more resources about that. But my main emphasis there is it's a different focus on what's wrong with the world. The biblical worldview, viewing the world through a biblical lens. The Bible should be our eyeglasses, our spectacles, our contact lenses for viewing the world. And from a biblical worldview, what is wrong with the world? Sin. What is wrong with the world? Depravity. And in a couple weeks, starting next week and the week after, we're going to look at Genesis 4. In Genesis 4, we see the people leave paradise. Paradise leaves them. It does not take long for sin to have its effect. It does not take long for polygamy, murder, jealousy, envy, anger, many other things. Think of sin like death. Actually, isn't it interesting that because of sin, there is death. And because of death, there is decomposition. A few times we have noticed that a mouse has died in our house. How do we notice that a mouse has died? I'm glad you asked. We smell the smell. The mouse dies in the wall and we have to wait a few days, generally just a few days, for the smell to go away. That happened once or twice and we got a cat. That cat is not take care of, taking care of the mouse because we feed the cat. But we did find a mice once since then. But we notice the, the smell, and that's an indication of death, right? In Genesis, uh, it is interesting to me that sin brings death, death brings decomposition. In Genesis 3, 8 through 14, Adam and Eve hide from God. They knew they were wrong. They knew they had disobeyed God. God talks to them and they blame each other. Adam says, the woman you gave me. Adam is blaming the woman and God. I find it very interesting because we still blame each other, don't we? When, when things happen, we still blame each other. And sometimes we even blame God. Though if you read that passage in Genesis 3, it seems that Adam was with Eve when this happened. That Satan, Lucifer, takes the form of a serpent, talks and tempts Eve. Eve takes from the fruit and Eve hands the fruit to her husband right there with her and says, Here, you take a bite. It's delicious. But... When God confronts Adam, he doesn't know what to say, so he blames the woman you gave me. In Genesis 3.14, God begins to give the consequences. Within the consequences, we see grace. God gives grace, and it is that he will provide a redeemer. We see the prophesied redemption in a midst of judgment. Grace. This is powerful. This is important. And this is where this gets so critical to our faith. Read with me Genesis 3.15. God is giving judgment. God says, I will put enmity, and God's talking to the devil right here. God is talking to Lucifer. God's talking to the snake, which is actually uh, taking the, uh, which is actually Lucifer. 
the devil, Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Her offspring will bruise the head of the serpent, which is really the head of Satan. And you shall bruise his heel. I like what one person shared. Some reject this as messianic. Some reject this as a prophecy of the Messiah because they think, why would God give grace in the midst of judgment? But it is common for God to give grace in the midst of judgment. Here are a few examples. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain sins. He kills his brother Abel. And when God brings judgment on Cain, Cain says, I'm going to be a wanderer. People are going to want to kill me. And what does God do? God gives him a mark, a mark of protection. In Genesis 6, and so God is giving grace. In Genesis 6, there's judgment on the earth. And what does God do? He gives grace to Noah and his family. Then Lot is rescued in the midst of judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Some think this passage in Genesis 3 is just a story showing why there's hostility with snakes. But notice the surprise that the snake talked. This is more than just a story about hostility. The devil was possessing the snake. And when we see seed right here, actually it says in the translation I read, I put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. And that's a word that could be literally translated seed. And when we see seed right here, and even in the next chapter, the word for seed means an individual. This is predicting the Messiah's death. This is in a singular Hebrew word. It is talking about a singular seed, which is talking about the Messiah, Jesus. The Hebrew word is singular. In defeating Satan, the Messiah will die, but he will obviously be resurrected and give a death blow to Satan. This is the first prophecy of the Messiah. Grace in the midst of judgment. Hark the herald angels sing. You know the song, right? In Genesis 3.15, Genesis 3.15 was clearly on the mind of Charles Wesley when he wrote the fourth verse. Listen, come desire of nations come, fix in us thy humble home, rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head, Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in his place. Final Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. And we could take that apart more, but you can tell just with a cursory look that Genesis 3.15 was on the mind of Charles Wesley when he wrote that great hymn and that great verse. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Jesus, the conquering seed. This verse, Genesis 3.15, is known in Christendom as a proto-evangelium or first good news because it's the first foretelling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Using an, using an emphatic Hebrew construction, God announced here that a male descendant, he, would someday deal the serpent, meaning Satan, a fatal blow. The New Testament writers understood it. Jesus Christ to fulfill this prophecy. Verse 15 is messianic. This is the first prophecy of the Messiah. Her offspring will give a death blow to the devil. Bruise his head means death. Verse 15 does say that there will be enmity between her offspring and the devil. And the devil's offspring may be demons. But there is still that sin struggle. And so some would say the word offspring actually is a singular, it's a singular word. The cursory look, it would make it seem like there's enmity between all of Eve's offspring, which would be all of us and the serpent's offspring. But ultimately, this is talking in a singular way about Jesus. 
Seed in the Bible, by the way, just means offspring. Hagar and her seed, Ishmael. Uh, This does not mean seed as in sperm, just offspring, pointing to Jesus. There will be one offspring, Jesus, that will deliver the death blow to Satan. So right here, after the first sin, God gives grace. But how important is this to the rest of the Bible? Let's talk about that for a moment. How important is this to the rest of the Bible? Besides answering the worldview question of what is wrong with the world, besides answering the worldview question of how can it be fixed, God is going to send a redeemer. And by the way, it's really interesting. When you look at the names in Genesis 4 and 5 and 6, you can tell they were looking for a redeemer. And especially when you look at the name of Noah at the end of Genesis 5, they were waiting for a redeemer. They, got, they left paradise and they were waiting for a redeemer. Adam and Eve were the only ones to know what it was like to be in paradise and what it was like to be in a fallen, depraved world. And they were eager for a redeemer. So besides answering those great worldview questions, how else is this important for the rest of the Bible? First, we can compare this narrative with the wording in Genesis 4 with Cain and then with Noah later on, which I just vaguely mentioned, but we're going to stop at that for now. Um, But secondly, we see the fulfilled redemption. You know, I've been emphasizing how these narratives in Genesis are critical for our interpretation of the whole Bible. Think about it. If we were to throw this out of the Bible, if we were to throw Genesis 3 and Genesis 3.15 out of the Bible, if we were to say it's just some ancient fairy tale, it's not real, and if we were to throw it out of the Bible... We would lose God's grace in the midst of judgment. Gone. We would lose the first prophecy that God will provide a redeemer. Gone. Critical prophecy too. And within that first prophecy, we see that the method of our redemption will come through humanity. Within this prophecy, her seed, the method of our redemption comes from a human being. The man, Jesus Christ. If we do not believe this passage, we lose the foundation for how God will bring salvation. So when do we see this fulfilled in the New Testament? Well, in a short answer, when do we not see this fulfilled in the New Testament? You begin with the Gospels. We see the incarnation of God, God becoming one of us. Emmanuel means God with us. But look at Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, at God's appointed time, at the right time, God sent forth his son. And who would that be? Jesus. God sent forth his son. And guess how it says? Born of a woman. This is Obviously referring back to Genesis 3.15. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And that would be all of us. So that we might receive adoption as sons. This passage is referring back to Genesis 3.15. Another passage, Luke 24.27. In Luke 24.27, they call it the road to Emmaus. Jesus has been resurrected and he goes along this road and he encounters some of his disciples. And for whatever reason, the disciples do not recognize that this is Jesus. It could be that they were in such grief, they were in such sorrow, and the last time they'd seen him, he was beaten beyond recognition, so they didn't recognize him. It could be that he disguised himself, but either way, they did not recognize him. And then eventually, it says, well, eventually they recognized him, and then they still did not figure things out. They did not get how the Messiah had to die by crucifixion and rise again. And then it says, Jesus opened their eyes. Jesus opened their eyes. He literally opened their eyes. 
You ever talk about the gospel with people and you're like, I'm doing the best arguments I have. The Holy Spirit needs to open people's eyes. And then in Luke 24, 27, it says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all the prophets, Jesus interpreted how the Old Testament was all about him. That'd be the greatest Bible study to be in. You know how awesome that'd be? You sit with Jesus and he's gonna take him through the Old Testament and be like, yep, that was about me. Genesis 3.15, about me. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, that was about me. All these Old Testament passages pointing to Jesus. Starting right here. All the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. One more passage today. Re- uh, Revelation 12.9. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon, that's Satan, was thrown down. That ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. It seems as though in Revelation chapter 12, verse nine, the writer, John, in this vision that God gives him is looking back to the fall of Satan and he calls him that ancient serpent. We needed a savior and in the judgment against the very first sin, God pointed to our redemption. God pointed to our redemption. Application. Salvation comes from the Lord. We must trust the Lord that he will provide a way of forgiveness. We can be encouraged that all the way back in Genesis, God prophesied a way of redemption. You know, we must be encouraged that God is faithful. We must have confidence in God's word. Do you, sitting there right now, realize that you need a savior? Oftentimes, we trivialize our sin, right? We think, I'm not that bad. We compare ourselves with the people we know, the people we see on the streets. You probably know the story. There was a couple of brothers, and they were part of a church, and they were pretty wicked. Bad businessmen, immoral people, crooked, deceitful, liars. Everybody knew they were pretty bad, but the pastor always supported them. Because they gave money when the church needed money. And then eventually, a new young pastor came. He didn't know them as well, but he wasn't going to gloss over those things anymore. But one of the brothers died. And around the time when one of the brothers died, the church needed a new roof. They needed a roof. It's a legitimate need. So the other brother who's pretty crooked and wicked and evil too, immoral and deceitful. And he came to the pastor and said, look, I know you need a roof for the church. I will provide for that roof if you preach my brother's funeral and say that my brother was a saint. The pastor's in quite a dilemma. They need a new roof on the church. The guy's gonna give him the roof. So he says, okay, I'll do it. So they're standing up at the funeral. Everybody's wondering, what's the pastor gonna say? And he says, he stands there and gives a eulogy, gives a meditation, gives a homily, gives a message. He says, this man before you today was a terrible businessman. He was immoral. He lacked integrity. He lied. He was deceitful. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) 
Oftentimes, we don't realize that we need a Savior. And right here in Genesis 3.15, they needed a Savior. And right here in the midst of judgment, God prophesied. God pointed towards redemption. And I want to ask you, are you trusting in the Redeemer? Are you trusting in him for your salvation? Or are you like so many that think, compared to my brother, compared to my sister, compared to my parents, whatever, I'm a saint. No one's good enough. One sin separates us from God. And we need to trust in the Savior. Bow your heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that if there's anyone listening, anyone here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day when the Holy Spirit convicts them that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. But Lord, how awesome it is that once we trust in you as Lord and Savior, we are saints. We are called saints because you declare us righteous. So Lord, if the Holy Spirit's convicting anyone this morning, I pray that they would commit their life to you as Lord and Savior. I pray that they would confess to you that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe in you as the one and only Savior. Trust in you and commit to you. And respond in a simple prayer such as this, that the prayer doesn't save, it's what's in their heart. But they would tell you, Lord Jesus, I confess I've sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Today, Lord, I am trusting in you as Lord and Savior. Today, Lord, I am committing my life to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. Lord Jesus, we need your help. John 15, 5, apart from you, we can do nothing. How awesome it is that we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. So we live the Christian life with you. You're the vine, we are the branches. May we live with you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Uh, after the, uh, as they, they're gonna lead the closing song, and Steve, you're also gonna do the prayer for the mill, right? Thanks.